You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is a social space, exhibition venue, and OpenStax archive of social movement materials. Our work is rooted in the belief that our shared history should be held in common and accessible to all. I'm Louise Barry. And I'm Elena Levy. This week, we will speak with some of the people spearheading criminal justice reform work here in New York City. First, we will look at how bail is used as a tool to criminalize poverty. Later in the show, we'll hear my interview with two of the organizers behind the campaign to close Rikers Island Jail. There are tens of thousands of New Yorkers who are imprisoned because they can't afford to buy their way out of jail, and ultimately many of them will um, plead guilty just to go home. Families are ripped apart, and as are communities, and people lose housing and jobs, and the bail fund was started as a way to correct this wrong. The Brooklyn Community Bail Fund is a charitable organization that pays bail for people who cannot afford it. We spoke with the directors of the bail fund about their work to abolish cash bail and what alternatives to this system could look like. I'm Rachel Ferran. I'm the managing director of the Brooklyn Community Bail Fund. And I'm Peter Goldberg, the executive director of the bail fund. We're building on a tradition that's been around for a really long time. Bail funds have formed over like decades of organizing work. They often, most frequently, would pop up after protest movements to pay bail for folks that were getting arrested at protests. And currently, there's many across the country that take different forms and serve different purposes. We are serving over 100 clients a month right now, but we're also seeing the benefit that bail funds have in bringing to light the issues that our clients are facing and bringing to light the many, many things that lead to someone uh, being brought into the criminal justice system and then multiple ways that they're disadvantaged once they're a part of it. The fund can pay bail in accordance with the Charitable Bail Act of 2012. This law allows nonprofit organizations in New York to pay bail of $2,000 or less for misdemeanor defendants who cannot afford it otherwise. We have clients who are working a full-time job and they just don't have the disposable income at that moment to, to pay their bail. And then there are, on the other end, folks that we work with that are being arrested because they're homeless and jobless and are sleeping somewhere where it's considered trespassing and then their poverty itself is criminalized and then they are being held in for their poverty too. Bail is set and they obviously can't afford it. It would be remiss to to not say that arrests in New York City fall along lines of class and race. You know, if you're a person of color in a poor neighborhood, your community is more likely to be over-policed, over-surveyed, you're more likely to be arrested, and then once you're arrested, you're more likely to have bail set. So when someone is charged with a misdemeanor and bail is set, what are his or her options? The truth is most people don't have any options. Around 90% of individuals who are accused of a misdemeanor and have bail set can't afford it. So they're going to Rikers um, and they'll spend on average their little over two weeks for their 
inability to afford a few hundred dollars bail. And then many of them will be then given an option of either pleading guilty to crimes often that they didn't commit or to staying in jail and fighting the case, which is another false option that this system gives people. For those who can pay, there's the option of paying in cash in the court building, which in itself seems like it should be a very straightforward process, and it just isn't. I do this every day, and there are times when I'm there with cash ready to pay for someone, and someone will still get sent to Rikers because of a miscommunication that happens in the court building. For folks that are under a lot of stress with their family member about to be potentially sent to jail, dealing with this sort of confusing process can be incredibly dehumanizing, stressful, and complex. And that's just pain and cash. Then when folks have some amount of money but still need to use a commercial bail bondsman, then that brings in a whole different realm of challenges involving just an exploitive business practice. For those who don't have the money up front to pay bail, many turn to commercial bail bondsmen. Bondsmen pay bail for people in bond and charge a premium, a number that is often over the amount allowed by law. We unfortunately are experts in this. We've paid around 1,300 bails in a year and a half, and we know the system. But for a mother who gets a call from her son saying he's been arrested, she will rush to court and then find out that the son is actually in a different borough because he was arrested somewhere other than where he lives. And then she will frantically try and get $1,000 from an ATM at midnight and then rush to court and then be told that his case hasn't been called yet and come back tomorrow. And she'll come back tomorrow to find out that bail has been set, but he's already been put on a bus to Rikers Island and that she should go pay at any detention center, and then she'll run to that detention center and be told that they can't even start the process until he's booked in. And it's infuriating as it is tragic, right? There's son who's in jail, and then there's the mother who has no idea what's going on and is also taking up every waking moment to try to get her son out and really just being told that from various people, there's nothing they can do, come back later. How do you see this work fitting into the larger movement to end mass incarceration? Paying bail, getting folks out of jail is hugely important and a harm reduction measure for people's real lives that matter. But that can only happen in in the context of a vision that's, for us, the abolition of cash bail, which is how this is largely also connected to Um, this movement towards ending mass incarceration. Bail is often described as incarceration's front door because if you can't afford it, you're going to jail. There is really convincing evidence that for low-level defendants, time in pretrial actually increases recidivism, and it should be apparent why when we're talking about a place like Rikers that is inherently violent and dehumanizing. Abolishing cash bail will do quite a lot, and then we'll still be left with substantial other issues that, as a society, we need to address. And I think that's one of the things that a bail fund does is to demand that all of us take a hard look at the way we're 
treating individuals who are struggling and if we actually find any value in things like the presumption of innocence or the value of human dignity. Getting rid of cash bail by itself will not solve the problem of the growth of the carceral state. The necessary first step is to stop arresting so many individuals for minor crimes and for crimes of poverty and for, frankly, no good reason at all. Change for bail will mean no longer conditioning someone's freedom on money, taking very seriously the presumption of innocence, and it will also mean a a focus on individuals rather than return rates. The police will take a 16-year-old, put him in front of a judge. The judge will set bail because the 16-year-old is unlikely to show up back to court, and that might be the case. But we need to stop having our sole focus be having the 16-year-old come back to court and also start wondering what better ways are there to deal with the struggles that this young person is going through. Our direct service is a way to lift up a lot of the issues. Those are the experiences of our clients. It's showing that bail is unnecessary, right? 95% of our clients come back to their court dates, even though they have no financial incentive. And then more concretely, too, we are actually in coalitions with folks that are working towards this. The Closed Rikers campaign being a huge coalition that we're a part of that is working towards this exact goal. As part of our belief for for change. We also think records should be closed. We've been involved with Just Leadership USA and the Catal Center for Justice and many of the other partners in the closed records movement. Now that we have background on the many unjust ways people are brought in and kept into the criminal justice system here in New York City, let's take a closer look at the organizing work going on to close Rikers Jail. To find out more about the campaign to close Rikers, I spoke to two of its organizers, Melody Lee and Myasia Hayes. Uh, my name is Melody Lee. I'm the Director of Strategy and Campaigns at the Catal Center for Health, Equity, and Justice. Uh, my name is Maesha. I am the lead organizer for the Catal Center for Health, Equity, and Justice, and I primarily work on the Close Rikers campaign where I um, organize with directly impacted people, um, speak to organizations to get them involved with the campaign, um, and other community organizing work. I know one major point is that Rikers is beyond reform, that the only option is to close it. So why why is the only option to close it? Rikers Island is the most notorious jail in the country, and the reason for that is because everyone knows about the history of violence and corruption and the overall conditions that detainees have to experience while they're on the island. And so our position is, you know, enough reform. You know, the only way forward right now is to really close the island. Incarceration is not a solution to public safety issues. In fact, it's actually quite the opposite, um, and that our investment really should be focused on communities and in the social safety net. We know there are a lot of human rights abuses on Rikers. Would, would you be able to talk about some of maybe the most common? 
what I can tell you is what my, our members have told us about their experiences being on Rikers, which is that the moment you get to Rikers, you have to adapt to a culture where the only way to survive is to be violent. And that is protecting yourself against other detainees. That could be the guards. So there's this physical violence that people have to endure. And then there's the psychological violence that people have to endure just because they are incarcerated. And losing your freedom is a traumatizing experience. There's a constant dehumanization that happens on Rikers, you know, beyond just this visceral experience that one has when they um, enter the facility, which is in fact actually a 10 jail complex. You know, the dehumanization by correctional officers, the amount of security that folks are forced to go through, the conditions, the palpable sense of, you know, decrepit space that is not actually healthy um, or safe to be in gets compounded beyond those who are detainees. It affects those who work there and it also affects the family members and loved ones who visit Rikers. You know, I think the factors that have led to what we see at Rikers is just the consequence and the outcomes of our long history of just wanting to disinvest and destroy black and brown communities. You know, 89% of detainees at Rikers are black and brown. And I see that as being uh, completely connected to the history of who used to own the land. The land was once owned by the Riken family, Dutch settlers who bought the island in the 1660s. One notorious member of that family was Richard Riker. In the 1800s, Riker was a municipal officer who used his power in the courts to enable the kidnapping and sale of free black people, while collecting a share of the kidnappers' profits. Today, Riker's Island has become a prominent example of the criminalization of poverty. Almost 80% of people currently held on Rikers are pre-trial. Um, so these are folks who have not been convicted of a crime. Um, they're awaiting their trial date. The issues with the court systems and levels of congestion, issues around bail and how bail is set, leads to folks who are sitting in Rikers detained for these indefinite periods of time, waiting there until they have their day in court. The, one of the major ways that people end up at Rikers is because of their mental health issues, that they can't get access to the sort of resources and treatment because it's just not funded. One of the key problems that we see within the city is that there's clear investment in criminalization rather, in, rather than in the social safety net. So why is it that the Department of Corrections is the primary way in which people can access things like treatment, whether it's for drug use or mental health issues? The Close Rikers campaign is the product of a collaboration between the Catal Center and Just Leadership. The campaign unofficially began when the founder of Just Leadership approached de Blasio at his inauguration, asking him to close Rikers. Since then, he's had several conversations with the mayor, including removing 16 and 17-year-olds off the island. And then in April, we officially launched... Um, on the steps of City Hall, with the support of 50 other organizations signed on to support the campaign. And then afterwards, we had a march and rally in September, and since then, we've just continued to grow. In October 2016, Mayor de Blasio announced plans to expand the Rikers Complex by building a new jail on the island. But this didn't stop the momentum of the campaign. That announcement about uh, building a new jail in Rikers happened right after our march and rally where almost like a thousand people came out in Astoria, Queens and demanded the closure of Rikers. 
So we were already coming off of this huge momentum of community support, people that were formerly incarcerated, to come together and, and unify and demand the closure of Rikers. So when the announcement came, people were still energized from that moment and ready to keep fighting. But recently, Commissioner Pont announced that He's completely stalling on constructing a new jail on Rikers and specifically named the Closed Rikers campaign. And so, in fact, that has re-energized our people all over again because it shows that when we came together in Queens like that, that it made a huge impact. What do you think it would take for the campaign to be successful? What would need to happen in order for Rikers to close? The clear demand for the closure of Rikers rests on Mayor de Blasio. He himself can actually uh, commit to closing Rikers Island. If Rikers were to close, if it were no longer a prison, what do you think the city should do with that island? I've seen other jails around the country become monument to kind of make sure that we remember um, and never to do the same things again. It could be an extension of LaGuardia. (laughs) Um, It could be uh, land to build new, like a school on. I love when we get to that, get in rooms where people are thinking that far ahead because it shows already that people can imagine a city without Rikers. But I think that's mostly up to, to the people to decide what they want to see with that land. Prisons have always been a site of popular struggle. If you're interested in learning more about the history of prison organizing, you might want to listen to Audio Interference Episode 2, an interview with Laura Whitehorn. Laura is a lifelong activist and one of several people behind our 2014 exhibition, Self-Determination Inside Out. The exhibition focused on anti-prison organizing led by incarcerated people. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. The archive is collectively run and volunteer-powered. If you like what you heard today, please make a donation to help keep the archive up and running. Just go to interferencearchive.org and click on Donate. From all of us at Audio Interference, thanks for listening.